So what about you? What do you wonder about? What do you wonder? As, as you listen to the voices, you see the people in that video and, and hear their responses, what do you wonder about? Wonder is one of these incredible things that I believe God's given us, given me, and given you as, as human beings. We have this ability to wonder, to wonder about the future, about the potential, about what it could be like. What do you wonder about? Wonder has this incredible ability. Sometimes uh, wonder can lead to fear, right? Well, I'm so concerned about the future. I'm worried about what might happen. Sometimes wonder can lead to courage. Sometimes wonder can lead to discovery. Some of the greatest discoveries ever, ever made in human history was because somebody decided to wonder about what could be. Right? The moon is round, the sun is round, maybe the earth could be round as well. What do you find yourselves wondering about? As we've begin, begun this conversation on wondering, and really as we wonder, we kind of view through, we use this illustration of a window pane. We kind of view, have a world view, right? We view the world, we view our experiences, we view the things that we've heard, the things that we've seen, the things that we've been taught, kind of through a window, through our frame of reference, a world view, if you would. What do you find yourself wondering about? And as we kind of think about our framework, as we think about our frame of reference or our worldview, what I find really uh, incredibly interesting about this is we begin to wonder more because our frame of reference, our framework, doesn't provide all the answers. And because all the answers aren't provided to us, we begin to wonder even more about, about what is and about what could be and about maybe what should be. But consequently, um, theists wonder, Christians, if you believe in a God, we, we kind of wonder what God is like. And what God has in store for us. We wonder sometimes, <clears throat> why do we pray and we not see answers? Why, 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 do we, why are there hurricanes and why are there tornadoes? And why do good things happen to bad people? And why are children sick and, and then sometimes die? Why would God allow these things? And we wonder about these things. And those are good things to wonder about. Those are good questions. And, and if you're not a theist, maybe you're an atheist or an agnostic, you kind of wonder, why are you crazy theists, you know, so naive and wondering about that? Now, Christians believe, we believe, as we've kind of wondered about this, we believe that at the very beginning, God has actually sent someone to our side, uh, to our kind of point of view, to our frame of reference. This is what we talked about last week, that God sent someone to stand on our side of the frame to serve as a reference point to us as we kind of look through the world, as we, as we perceive the world, as we understand these experiences of humanity, that there is someone on our side that we can kind of look through in, in spite of all of this. So as we wonder... And as, as we kind of grow in our knowledge, and, and as we kind of understand more and more about the universe, what we, d we realized is that God wasn't okay to just leave us here. That God wasn't okay to just kind of look down on humanity and say, sooner or later they'll get there. Sooner or later they'll understand. Sooner or later their knowledge will, 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 will get to the place where they understand me, and, and as they understand more about the cosmos and the universe and life and nature, sooner or later they'll, they'll get there. God wasn't okay to step on this side of, of, of the frame and look down on us and say, maybe eventually they'll understand me. He decided, I'm going to insert myself in human history. I'm going to interject myself so that they can know me and know more about me, so that they can know what I'm like and maybe what I think of them and the hopes and the plans that I have for them. God wanted to be known, and he wanted us to specifically know more about him. Last week, we talked about this first century writer in, the, in the, the book of Hebrews. We're not really sure who wrote this book. That's why we call it Hebrews. It could have been a man. It could have been a woman. We just know that the author was writing to these first century Christians who, who had begun to believe in Jesus, but were kind of beginning to lose sight of their faith. They were beginning to kind of shift away from their Christian point of view, from their Christian kind of reference point. 
So the writer, he's kind of writing them to encourage them. No, come back on spot. Come back on point. Don't lose, like don't throw your framework out. Don't lose it all because of this. Come back. And he says this. This is an incredible line that we talked about last week. This is Hebrews 12. He says, fix your eyes on Jesus, who is the pioneer and the perfecter of faith. One translation said he is the beginning and the ending of faith. It started with him and it ended with him. That there should be nothing else uh, that we kind of build our framework of faith on, nothing else that we build Christianity on, not a philosophy, not a man, not an organization, not, not some kind of weird, twisted theology, that it all kind of begins and ends with, gene, with Jesus. He's the bookend to faith, the, the beginning, the pioneer, the person who started it, the perfecter, the finisher, the closer that he began the story, and then he ended the story. He brought a conclusion to it. That faith, what it should be, our framework for faith, should be just Jesus, entirely Jesus, nothing else. And he says that there are things that kind of creep on the way. There, there are things that, that, that are like secondary issues that for us become primary issues. And when they become primary issues, we begin to lose sight of Jesus. We begin to lose sight of God and who God is. So he was encouraging us to, to get these things out of your way. Discard those issues and fix your eyes on Jesus. Now bring us to this morning. Here's, here's really who I want to talk about. I want to address two, two groups of people. The first person, the first group of people rather that I would like to address are the people who kind of grew up in faith. You'd say, Jim, I understand this. I have a, kind of a, a Christian point of view, a Christian framework, a Christian reference point. But as I grew, my, my faith kind of, kind of didn't grow with me, right? What I experienced, what I learned, well, what I saw, it didn't line up with my, with my faith. So I had to leave. I had, I had to walk away. It wasn't good enough for me. I, I couldn't stay here any longer. I had to leave. And then the second group of people I want to talk about are the people that are thinking of leaving. The people that, 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 are, that are maybe here, maybe you're volunteering here. Maybe you go to another church. Maybe you're not really sh- sure or, or comfortable with, with what you've been taught and, and, and uh, even what you've heard over a, a period of time. And, you know, your parents think you're in, your family thinks you're in, your wife or your husband thinks you're in, you know, you, you, you said the prayer, you read the Bible, you got the t-shirt, you went to camp, you did all those things. And they think you're in. And you find yourself sitting here saying, I'm just, I'm not sure. And what does that mean if I'm not sure? I've had all these conversations with myself and I just don't know that I can believe anymore. I don't know how much longer I can maintain this. I don't know if I can continue in this. I, I, I'm reaching for the doorknob of faith to kind of walk out the door because I just don't know that I can believe it. And you're worried about your, your, what your wife might think or what your family might think or what your kids might think. But you just don't know how long you can continue to hold up th- this front almost of faith. See, as we look through this, this idea of, of what our frameworks are, as we kind of look through, through this idea of, of what a Christian uh, viewpoint might be, what I find incredibly interesting, especially for those of us maybe that have walked away from faith, these kind of deconversion stories, as I call them, people that had a foundation of faith and then they walk away, they, they found somewhere over the line things didn't line up, experiences didn't line up, they kind of went for the door. What I find really interesting is that in every deconversion story I've heard, there's never a problem with Jesus. The problem is always with those secondary issues that have become primary issues. It's, it's with a man. It's with an organization. It's with a philosophy. It, it's with this idea that science and faith can't, can't uh, be cohesive. There's, there's these secondary issues that we kind of allow in that cause us to walk for the door of faith. And maybe that's where you find yourself this morning. I, I don't know why I'm here. I really don't know that I even believe this, but, but you know, they serve a good cup of coffee and someone invited me. So here I am. I've heard you have really good donuts, so I'll have a snack and then I'll go do what I want to do but you find yourself wondering, I don't know that I can believe it. I, I don't know that what I've been taught is true. In every deconversion story I've ever heard, it's never been, Jesus is my problem. 
It's always a faith institution or how we put faith in faith and we just believe to believe, but, but there's, there's really no substance to it. It's something that I grew up with, but, but I can't really rationalize it with my life's experiences. It's something I, maybe this new information that I've been taught, this new book that I read, and it doesn't line up with, with, with what I, I was taught as a child, and I just I can't find a way to make the two gel and work together. So I'm headed towards the door, or maybe even I've walked out the door. You see, for what's interesting, we use this, this window pane as, as a reference point for us, is that th- th- these window panes all have something in them for us. There's something in there that we've all kind of put in that causes us to view Christianity, that causes us to view faith, or maybe even view God in a little bit of a disordered way. And we all have them. We all have things that that have have kind of creeped into our life, secondary issues that kind of block the primary primary thing. The the first one that we're going to talk about is this, and maybe this was something you grew up with, right? That that, that faith somewhere along the way, it's good enough for a child. Right, your your childhood faith, you're taught it, and as a child, you you believed it. You kind of bought into it, hook, line, and sinker. It seemed to make faith to make sense to you. But as you grew up, you realized that that this childhood faith it, it didn't really line up with the rest of your experiences. That maybe you 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 kind of saw that your parents didn't even believe what was taught to you. And, and as you grew up and as you began to realize that this childhood faith isn't making sense, you began to walk towards the door. Maybe you grew up and you realized that, that you, you, know, you thought you were in this perfect house, that you had the perfect parents and perfect siblings and everything was perfect. And then you grew up and you stepped outside of your house and you experienced the rest of the world and, and you began to realize, well, this doesn't make sense. This perfect thing I grew up with, this isn't reality. This isn't the, the, like real for the rest of the world. This was like my own little shell, and now that I'm out of it, how, how does this line up? How does this make sense? Where does God fit into this? Maybe it wasn't childhood. Maybe it was uh, th- this next one. Maybe it was when you went to school. Right? You went to school, and, and, and someone taught you something you didn't know before. Maybe it was in high school. I've talked to a lot of high schoolers that tend to struggle with this. <clears throat> you, you were taught something in high school that didn't line up with your beliefs. Maybe it was grad school or med school. There was some science that wasn't taught. And now that you know it, it, do, it doesn't make sense and it doesn't fit in to my Christian worldview. And, and I'm really not sure with this new understanding that I can ever believe what I used to believe. So school pushed you out. Maybe it was this. and th- This was kind of where, where my story was. Maybe it was your religious experience. Maybe you grew up and, and with some kind of religious background. Maybe it was, it was a great experience when you were younger. Maybe it was a really awful experience. Maybe it was a real legalistic experience like I had, where it was all about what you did and, and, and how you showed everyone else that you were living. It didn't really matter who you were when no one was around. It didn't matter what was going on on the inside. It was all about the show, about what people could see. And your religious experience, while it was good when you were younger, as you grew, you walked further and further away because you began to see the hypocrisy in all the people. Things weren't lining up. Things didn't make sense. I didn't like where this was going. Or maybe it was this one. Maybe it was all about the scars. Right? We had done something. We'd lived away. And we have regrets. We have past things that we hope no one knows about. We want to keep them in a closet so no one can see them. But we all have them. I mean, every one of us has things that we regret. Every one of us has things we hope no one ever finds out about. And we live with them, and they begin to, take, to kind of like cling on to us like a burden, and it becomes heavy, and it becomes uncomfortable. And we kind of look through this lens of all of our scars and all of our hurts and all the things that we regret, and we're really not sure how we can see God through that. Or maybe it's this one. Maybe it's that somewhere along the way, you received the bad news. It was like earth-shattering news. You found out the disease was terminal, and you couldn't imagine what life would be like without him or her in it. You found out he no longer wanted to be married or she no longer wanted to be married. And they were walking for the door. And in that moment, 
your framework of faith, your reference point, your view of God begin to shatter because how would God ever allow this to happen? Or finally, maybe it was the thing you, couldn't just, you just couldn't get by. It's just there and it continually blocks you and it's, it, it, it holds you back all the time and you're really not sure what it is, but you can never seem to work through it. You can never seem to get by it. It just continually holds you back. Maybe it's fear, fear of the future or fear of what might happen if you take a step or fear of what might happen if you believe. Maybe it's, it's your body image. You, you look in the mirror and you just see all these flaws and, and it's, there, there's just something in your appearance that you hate, but no one else sees it. No one else has any idea, but you see it. And it makes you uncomfortable and, and it causes you to doubt and it causes you to not believe. And it's something that's been with you forever and ever and you just can't get through. It continually blocks who you want to be. It blocks who you want God to be for you. And you can't seem to get by it. We all want to convince ourselves that these things don't impact our life and our worldview, but the truth is they do. All of us have a worldview, and all of our worldviews are a little bit jaded. They're a little bit cloudy. The things from our childhood have kind of creeped their way in, and we view the world, and we view God, and we view faith through all of these other things that we've allowed into our worldview. Now, this isn't wrong. We all have that. Everyone has it. The challenge in this is when our worldview begins to push God out, Perhaps maybe our worldview of God wasn't built on the right thing. The, the, the problem is when our worldview begins to say, but Jesus doesn't fit into this, I would suggest that maybe our worldview was never built on the thing that it should have been built on. You see, Jesus encountered the same problem in, in the first century. When, when he first started his ministry and he's gathering his disciples and, and they're all kind of coming to him, they had a first century worldview as well. They had things in their worldview that had clouded them, their expectations, things they were taught as children, some of their experiences, this new thing that Jesus is teaching. It's all kind of coming together and, and they're experiencing Jesus with all this extra baggage, with all of these secondary issues that have kind of come into the foreground and become primary issues. They believe things like, like this, that God loved you if you were healthy, but if you weren't healthy, God hated you and he was judging you. They believe that all wealthy people were loved by God because if you were wealthy and healthy, then clearly God's blessing you. But if you were poor and if you were sick or if your child was sick or if maybe your niece or nephew was sick, then God was angry with you and he was judging you. They believe that, that the, the Jewish people were the chosen people by God to be blessed and they were going to change the world forever. Yet at this point in time, they had been under like the thumb of Rome and they couldn't get out. And they couldn't kind of line up what they had been taught in faith and what their experiences are right now. Because if, if we're God's chosen people and God loves us and God wants to do something through us, why in the world can't we get out from Rome? Why is Rome this like totalitarian like ruler over everything we care about? And they couldn't line up their faith, what they've been taught, their worldview, with this experience of Rome dominating them. And then Jesus comes on the scene. And Jesus begins to gather. And Jesus begins to change things. And this incredible thing begins to kind of take place. <coughs> and God did for them what God ultimately did for us. He sent someone to stand on their side of the frame to serve as a frame of reference. To serve as a reference point of how we view God. This is what Christmas is really all about. Toward the end of his life, Jesus gathers his disciples and he says, hey, we're going to we're going to get together and we're going to go celebrate the Passover, as we have many times. But this year, I want to go do it in Jerusalem. 
And his disciples, they're kind of thinking, I'd rather not go to Jerusalem, Jesus. Every time you go to Jerusalem, you say something radical and kind of off-putting, and it scares people, and they get upset. And now you have these people that, that want to hurt you. Like, can't we just not go to Jerusalem? How about we celebrate Passover in Nazareth? Let's go home and see your mom and your family. We'll celebrate Passover there. That seems like a better idea. It's a little safer. But Jesus says, no, 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 I don't want to go to Nazareth. Let's go to Jerusalem, and let's celebrate Passover together. So he and his disciples, they make a way out to Jerusalem. <clears throat> They're about to celebrate Passover. They, they kind of do it in this upper room that's hidden, so no one knows what's going, what's going on there because, again, there's these religious people that hate Jesus and want to hurt them, but the only reason they don't is because these crowds of people follow Jesus. So they're in this upper room celebrating the Passover, and this incredible conversation takes place that, that at first sight seems so confusing, but as we begin to dive into it, it's so clear of what Jesus is talking about, but his disciples couldn't get it. Jesus starts off by telling them, hey, now that we're here, I'm going to leave. And his disciples are thinking, where are you going? You just told us to come here. You told us to come to Jerusalem to celebrate, and now you're leaving? Don't leave us. These people hate us. If you leave, they're going to arrest us and kill us. Don't leave, Jesus. What do you mean you're leaving? Don't leave. Simon Peter steps up. This is Simon Peter. He's kind of the vocal guy of the group. He's the loud mouth, the guy who just kind of flies off the cuff and says whatever he wants. Simon speaks up and he says this, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus replied, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow me later. To which Peter must have thought, I don't even understand that. That's not what I asked, but I guess it makes sense. Peter asked, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. And we know where the story of Simon Peter goes, right? I imagine in this moment, he's thinking one of two things. He's either thinking, hey, Jesus, if you leave and you make your way, say, to Nazareth or Galilee, and you leave us here in Jerusalem, all these religious leaders that you've ticked off, they're going to come after us. They're going to arrest us, and they're going to they're kill us, so I'll lay down my life for you. I'm going to lay it down for you, Jesus. Go ahead. Or he's thinking this, hey, if you're leaving to make yourself the Messiah that we've heard about for years and years, and you're going to kind of make you, like, your claim to the throne, and you're going to take on Rome, there's going to be a battle, and I'm going to fight for you, and more than likely, I'm going to die. I'm willing to lay down my life for you, Jesus, whichever way you go. If you leave, or if you're starting a war, I'm with you. I'm the guy. You can count on me. And Jesus looks over at Simon Peter, and, and most of the time, we, we, when we read this part, we think Jesus is angry. Like, how dare you, Peter? I think Jesus more said this with a little bit of a smirk on his face. Looking at Peter saying, <clears throat> Jesus answered, will you really lay down your life for me? You can imagine Peter like this proud kind of, of course I would, you can count on me. I'm the man, Jesus, I'm your man. Jesus kind of leans in and puts his hands on his shoulder and he says, very truly, which is another way of saying, <clears throat> I'm about to tell you what's gonna happen and it's not gonna change. There's nothing you can do to avoid this. I'm giving you this information, I'm telling you what you're gonna do and no matter how hard you try, you can't avoid it. Very truly, I tell you, before the rooster crows, or before the sun comes up in the sky, you will disown me. Not only are you not going to lay down your life for me, you're going to disown me. And not once, Peter, not even twice, but three times, you're going to disown me. <coughs> this was disturbing. I mean, this was concerning. These guys are now confused. They're worried. Peter's upset. I, I told you I laid down my life for you, and now you're telling me I'm going to run away and, and, and disown you? Like, I would never do that, Jesus. What are you talking about? And this confusion begins to set in in the disciples. This, this worry begins to set in. They don't understand what he's talking about. They're confused about some of the things he's saying. Jesus says this, don't let your hearts be troubled. But Jesus, you just told us you're leaving. Jesus, you just told us you're going to depart from us. You just told Peter, like, like the guy, the man, he, he's the one we all look up to. You just told him he's going to abandon you and disown you. How are we not to worry? Like, Jesus, I don't understand. I am so confused. Don't let your heart be worried. 
And then he makes this radical statement that, that I, I can't even, I, I can't tell you how much time it would take to dive into to the intricacies of this, but he makes this statement that should have sent the disciples running for the hills. He says this, hey guys, you believe in God, right? You believe in God? Yeah, Jesus, of course we do. Then believe in me also. And we read that sometimes and we just kind of gloss over it. Like, of course Jesus would say that. But to this group of Jewish boys, th- this is how they, they, they interpreted this. Okay, Jesus, like we want to know about God and we're really glad you're teaching us about God. That's what we want. We want to know what God is like and, and what God thinks of us. Like, does God like us? What's his plans for us? That's one thing to teach us about God. But to compare yourself to God? Jesus, that's something entirely different. I can roll with those wacky things you say. I can roll with those offensive things you say. I can roll with how like, you make fun of the, the religious people. I'm with you there. But, but man, when you say I'm God, I don't know that I can go with you there, Jesus. This should have sent the disciples running for the hills. Instead, they're more confused. I, Jesus, I don't think I understand what you're talking about. Jesus completely dives into something different. Again, the confusion is setting in. In my father's house, and they're thinking, well, okay, if you're talking about your father, I guess, I guess you're talking about God and God's house is the temple. We built the temple. We know where the temple is. Okay, I think I know what you're talking about, Jesus. You're talking about the temple. He says, in my father's house, there are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that? So I'm going there to prepare a place for you. And now I don't think he's talking about the temple. There's not that many rooms in the temple. What's he talking about? He's not going to the temple. And if I go which he kept talking about going, so now they're a little confused. And if I go and prepare a place for you, now Peter, I want you to listen to this part. Pay attention because you were worried about this. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and I will take you to be with me that you also may be where I am. Jesus, I, I, I'm a little confused here. Like you're talking about going to your father's house. It sounds like, like you're talking about leaving the world. It's not like you're going to Nazareth. It's not like you're going to the temple. It sounds more like you're talking about leaving the world, like, like, almost like you're dying. Like, are you talking about death? Because if you're talking about death, I don't want to go. Don't take me with you. Leave me here. Protect me. I, I don't want to follow you there. And you're saying you're going to go, and then you're going to come back, and you're going to take me with you? I, this doesn't sound good, Jesus. What are you talking about? What do you mean you're going to go? Are you going to die? By the way, guys, I know you seem really confused. Then he throws this in there. You know the way to the place where I'm going. <laughs> and now they're laughing like, we don't know the place. We don't even know what you're talking about, Jesus. And then Thomas, one of the followers of Jesus, they could later call him Doubting Thomas because he's the guy who always doubted everything Jesus said until he, he like, saw it come to pass. He's the guy who, even when Jesus was alive, he didn't believe it until he could stick his hands or his fingers through the holes. This is Thomas. Thomas speaks up and he kind of addresses Jesus for the whole group. He says, I think what everyone else is thinking. Jesus, Lord, we don't know where you're going. We have no idea where you're going. I think you think we're smarter than we are. We're a bunch of fishermen. We got a few tax collectors here. Like, we're not smart. We're not teachers. We're not theologians. I have no idea what you're talking about. What do you mean we know where you're going? Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? And then Jesus makes this incredible statement. It's an incredibly famous statement. You probably know where it's going already. Here's the thing about this statement, though. This statement is always pulled out of context to be a very, like, inclusive statement, like, or very, sorry, exclusive statement. Like, like, it's all about us. You can't do this unless you're part of us. It's always ripped out of this incredible context to show that Jesus is kind of stiff-arming people away. But when you read it in its context, when you read it how Jesus is saying it, it's not viewed as, like, this exclusive thing. It's viewed incredibly inclusive, that every 
everybody can be a part of it, that everybody can know the way. You want to know the way to where I'm going? You want to know the way? You don't believe you know the way? Here it is, guys. I am the way. I am the way. You want to know the way to the Father? It's me. You want to know the truth about God? It's me. You'll never know more truth about God than you will looking at me. I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. Then John, later, he records when Jesus is talking about life and talking about eternal life and the life that people would have and why he came, he records this prayer that Jesus says. And Jesus says this, In this life, Father, in this life, I pray that they may know you, that they may know God, that they may know their heavenly Father and the servant that you sent and the son that you sent. God, I pray that they might know you by knowing me and that the more they know me, the more they know you. The more they see me, the more they see you. The more they understand me, the more they understand you. God, this is the life that I'm talking talking about that I want everyone to have, that they would know you by knowing me first. Guys, I am the way. I am the truth. And I am the life. And then here's the part that's always ripped out of, the, out of context. No one comes to the Father except through me. And oftentimes we read this almost like Jesus is kind of snickering, like, ha, 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 can't get to God until you go through me. This is how I think Jesus is really saying it. You know that most famous verse in all of Scripture, for God so loved the world? You see, this is inclusive. God's heart is that all of you would know the way. This isn't supposed to be like, like an, exclusive, or an exclusive statement that, that, that pushes people out, or an inclusive statement rather. This isn't meant to push people away. This is meant to open your arms to ex- get people in. I wish that all of you would know the way. God did this so the entire world would know who he is and what he thinks of us and what he wants from us. God did all of this so that all of you could know the way. And I am the way. If you want to know the Father, you come through me. And this is for everyone. This isn't just for my disciples. This isn't just for for, for the speakers and the preachers. And it isn't just for the Jews. This is for the whole world. Come and know the Father and know him through me. Then he says, if you really knew me, if you really know me, you will know my Father as well. So Jesus, are are you saying that, that we can know who God is by knowing you? Yes, that's exactly what I'm saying. From now on, you do know him, and you have seen him. And again, these guys are so incredibly confused. Their immediate response, because they're so literal, is like, but we haven't seen him. That's what we want. We want you to show us God, but we're not seeing him, Jesus. Please just show us God. And we're going to divert from the message just a little bit to talk about uh, how this actually played out uh, uh, in history and how we know this to be true. You probably learned this in school. Have you ever heard the term textual criticism? Textual criticism is a science that people who, who verify ancient documents, they use the science to prove whether or not a document can be trusted. And this is, isn't just documents in the Bible. This is any ancient document. Because ancient documents are valuable. Because most people couldn't read and most people couldn't write. So whenever we find anything that's written thousands and thousands of years ago, the, these people who verify this, they, they have a science developed to prove whether or not this is accurate, whether or not this is, this is actually documented and trustworthy. And they do this because, because every ancient document is so rare, any ancient document can be sold for a lot of money. And what was happening is a lot of people were writing whatever they wanted and then signing some famous person's name to it. I'm saying all of this, and I'm the Apostle Paul, and really, you know, it's Jim from No Man's Land. So there's this science developed to prove whether or not a text can be trusted or not. And one of the ways they do this is through what we call the... Uh, I'm going to 
say it right again. This stuff is always a mouthful. One of the ways they do this is through the criterion of, emba- of embarrassment. That's how they kind of view this. And what that essentially means is this, is that any ancient author, any ancient writer who's kind of including himself in the mix of embarrassing himself in the mix of, the, of a document, it can be trusted. Because no ancient writer is going to basically say, hey, I'm a babbling idiot, you should trust me. But that when a writer or an author of these ancient documents does write that and he does include himself in the mix of being somebody who's confused, of being somebody who's embarrassed, that it can be trusted. Because that's not what people did. People didn't include themselves in the mix. People didn't, didn't want themselves to look bad. And as we're reading through the book of John, and John's including himself in this mix of disciples who's completely like, confused, like a babbling idiot, like they don't understand, and, and, and they're just bewildered. For, for John to include himself in the mix, historians believe you can trust what John says because John is embarrassing himself, willingly putting himself in the mix and saying, look at me, I'm an idiot. I have no idea what Jesus is talking about. So you can trust what Jesus is saying. You can trust what John is writing. You can trust the words of Scripture. You can trust the New Testament documents. Because these men, the authors of, of the gospel, they include themselves in the mix of people being absolutely like, confused, running around like babbling idiots. And the reason you can trust it is because they were actually confused and actually running around like babbling idiots. Jesus, we have no idea what you're talking about. Guys, I've told you like 300 times already. Jesus, we have no idea. What do you mean you're going somewhere? I've been saying this from the beginning. You can trust what's being written because the authors are telling you how stupid they are. It's funny. It's true. It goes on with this bewilderment. They're all confused, going back and forth. What do you mean you're leaving? I don't understand you're leaving. Where are you going? What are you doing, Jesus? We don't understand. Philip speaks up and says this, Lord, Lord, we're so confused. Here's what we really want. Just show us the Father. And then he says, and I love this next part, and that will be enough for us. Jesus, we just want to know what God is like and if God likes us. Just tell us that and we're good. And Jesus answers Philip and looks at him and says, Philip, do you know me? Philip, do you know me? Even after I've been among you for such a long time, don't you know me? I'm telling you, the way to know the Father is to know me. If you want to know God, know me. Philip, you know God. Jesus, I don't know God. Philip, don't you know me? I've been with you for years. If you know me, you know God. Don't you know me even after I've been among you for so long? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. You see, the truth for us is your heavenly Father wants you to know him. He wants you to have a clear picture of who he is and and, and what he kind of thinks about you and what he wants for you. Your heavenly Father wants you to see him. That's why he sent me. Your heavenly Father wants you to know him. That's why he sent me. Your heavenly Father wants you to know the plans he has for you. That's why he sent me. Then he says this, and if you're kind of on the outside looking back in, if you're one of the people who've kind of walked away from your faith, or maybe the people who are questioning walking out on faith entirely, thinking, I don't know what my wife's going to say, I don't know what my kids are going to think, I, I, just, I just don't know that I can buy into this anymore. This is the statement that I think Jesus would say, as he said to his disciples, I think he's saying it to you, and I think he's saying it to me. Believe me. Believe me. Don't worry about the other stuff. Get the secondary issues out of the way. As the author of Hebrews would say, shake off everything that entangles you and causes you to be tripped up. Shake that off and believe me. 
Focus your eyes back on me. Don't get distracted. Don't allow the, the, the things that we cloud our worldview and our framework with. Get them out of the way and see me. Believe me when I say that I am in my Father and my Father is in me. And then he concludes with this incredible statement that unless you read the New Testament and understand Jesus, you probably lose sight of how amazing and how big this statement is. This comes from, from Jesus' incredible heart of compassion. Believe me when I say that I am in my Father and that my Father is in me. Then he says this, if you can't do it, if you can't believe me, if you can't believe the things I've said, if you can't believe the statements I've made, if you can't believe those incredible sermons I, I preached, if you can't believe me, believe at least on the evidence of the works themselves. Believe at least on the evidence of the things that I'm about to do. If you can't believe my words, believe the evidence of what's about to happen. So as we wrap up, here's the question I want to ask you with. <clears throat> I want to kind of leave with you. When it comes to Jesus, no one really debates whether or not Jesus is a historical person. Whether it's a non-theist historian or a theist historian, everyone kind of believes Jesus is a historical figure. If you were, were, grew up in a time where, where they questioned it and your, your professor tried to tell you he wasn't, all that information has come and gone. Documented theist and non-theist historians all believe Jesus is a historical person. They also all believe that this group of people that follow Jesus started this thing called the church just a few weeks after Jesus died. And that this church went on for thousands and thousands of years. It effectively changed the world. No one argues that. That's historically proven in Christian circles and out of Christian circles. Here's my question. How does this group of babbling idiots who are so scared and so worried and, and so like, mis they just misunderstood the man who they were with for, for three years. They didn't understand us. How does a group of scared, confused men write themselves into this story so scared and confused? Perhaps... It's because they were. Perhaps it's because they were actually at this moment scared and confused and had no idea what the future was going to hold. And then a few days later, what happened? They witnessed this man, the person they would say their rabbi, their teacher, their Messiah, crucified. And in that moment, they all doubted. No one believed Jesus was the Son of God when he died. What happened? Peter, he denied Jesus three times to a middle school girl, scared to death. They arrested Jesus and put him on trial. And what did his disciples do? They ran for the hills like little kids. They were scared and they were confused. So how does this group of men who are scared and confused just a few days from this conversation go on in just a few weeks to effectively change the world? To go back into the streets, the same people that arrested and crucified Jesus. Peter, the man that just denied Jesus before a little girl, goes into the same streets where Jesus was arrested and crucified and looks at thousands of people and calls them all murderers and said, you're responsible for his death. How does a man, how does a group of men who are so scared, John and Philip, Thomas, who doubts everything, Peter, who's got this big mouth but has nothing to back it up, how do people who are so scared and so confused and, and just so worried in one moment, a few days later, change the world? It's because they believe the evidence of the works themselves. Because they saw Jesus die. And then three days later, they're having lunch with him on the beach. And everything changed. 
In that moment, everything changed. No longer was Jesus just this crazy teacher who made off-the-cuff statements and was a little blasphemous at times and, and rude to religious people. Like that Jesus, that, that Jesus died. But when Jesus came back to life and I'm having lunch with him, this is the son of God. This is different. I don't care what people think. I'm not scared. Kill me. Jesus said he already prepared a place for me. I'm going there. My life doesn't matter. I'm going to call all of you a bunch of murders and I'm going to walk down the street not scared to death. There's nothing you can do. I I've seen the Son of God. The evidence of the works themselves proved who Jesus was. I've seen. Jesus wasn't asking them to have faith in faith. Jesus wasn't asking them to believe in belief. He said, just believe in what you've seen. Believe in the evidence of the works themselves. And I've seen and I've believed. And my life is never the same. And I think what Jesus was saying to them and what Jesus is even saying to us, those of us who doubt, those of us who've walked away, those of us who've closed the door on faith and said, that's my mother's faith, that's my father's faith, that's not good enough for me. I'm checking out. I'm done. I think Jesus was saying this. If you look past me, if you stop short of me, or you take your eyes off of me, you may miss your heavenly father. If you look past me, if you allow those secondary issues to cloud, if you stop short of me, if you don't go far enough to see the, the, the hopes and the God that I'm presenting to you, if you take your eyes off of me and look at these other things that can so easily confuse and so easily get in the way, you may miss sight of the person I've come to tell you about, your Heavenly Father. Don't look past me. God wants you to know he wants to be clear and he wants you to know who he is and he wants you to know that he loves you so much that he sent me to tell you and to die a shameful death so that you could know him. So for those of you that shut the door on faith and walked out, here's the question I leave with you. What was the faith you lost fixed on or fastened to? And for those of you that are headed towards the door, They'll say, that was my mom's faith. That was my dad's faith. I've learned too much. I've seen too much. My religious background just doesn't, it's failed me time and time again. I just received news that I can't believe God would allow this. I can't get past this time in my life. For those of you that are headed to the, to the door, let me ask you this question. What is the faith that you're losing fixed on or fastened to? Is it a childhood experience? Is it something maybe your parents taught you but didn't line up with what you believe now? Is it some charismatic individual or an organization? Is it some theology? Maybe perhaps the reason we're questioning and the reason we're heading towards the door is because our faith was never founded, was never built on the one thing it needed, Jesus and Jesus alone. Jesus said, I'm here to show you the Father. I am the beginning and the ending of faith. Everything else outside of me can go away. You can know the Father because you can know me. If you're hung up on the Old Testament, Jesus said, maybe you didn't know this, but I've come and I, I've landed the plane of the Old Testament and I've given you something completely new. If someone's trying to disprove the Old Testament, let him disprove it. Jesus said, I've landed that plane and here's something new for you. I am the author and I'm the perfecter of faith. No one can come to the Father except through me and I've opened the door for everyone. Will you find the way and will you walk through it? Sometimes we, we give homework, and this isn't homework like I'm following up with you next week, and if you don't do this, you can't come back in. We're not going to check your card at the door, but I want to give you some homework this week. For all of you, 
I want you to, to, to find, get a copy of. You don't have to steal. If you need a Bible, head out and back to Journey Central. We have free Bibles, and we will gladly put one in your hands. I want you to find a Bible, and I want you to read through the Gospel of Luke. You know the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke. Luke's the third Gospel writer. I want you to read through the Gospel of Luke between now and Christmas, and here's what I want you to do. I want you to push the secondary issues aside. Push the things that you think keep you from believing in God aside, and look at the words of Luke with open eyes, and ask yourself the question, can I know God, and what does God think of me? Would you do that by Christmas, and allow God to speak to you? Because here's what I know. God sent Jesus in the world to stand with us so we wouldn't wonder where we stood with God. God sent Jesus to us to stand with us and point us to God so that we would never have to wonder again, is there a God? Can I know God? Can I trust God? And what does God think of me? That's something for you to wonder about over the next few weeks. And I hope you'd wander yourself back in here for part three of Welcome to Wonderland. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for this incredible passage of Scripture. Lord, I know it can be confusing, just as as your disciples were so confused. But God, from the outside looking in, it is so clear that you are continually pointing us in the direction of your Father, asking us, encouraging us, pleading with us, just take one more step in his direction. I pray that today we would do just that. For those of us that have maybe shut the door on faith, I pray that we would take one step in the direction of maybe opening that, that door again and allowing our eyes to be fixed on Jesus one more time to see if that faith would last. For those that are headed towards the door, before we open that door, I pray that we would take a step back and push those secondary issues aside, God, the things that we've allowed to cloud the view of God and the view of Jesus, I pray that we would push them away and focus on Jesus again. God, and for those of us that believe, I pray that this would be a reminder once again of why we believe what we believe. Not because of a church, not because of a book, not because of a charismatic individual, but because you decided to send your son to the world so that we could know you. And I pray, God, that we would know you. I pray that we would know when things are beginning to distract, when we allow things to get in your way. And I pray we'd have the wisdom to push them to the side, the courage to do so, and to focus our eyes back on you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.